BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Friday, May 6th, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com and on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 180,000 titles to choose from. And they're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free 30-day trial. To get started, go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. That's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. We are in the third of four episodes talking about climate change. We launched this series on April 22nd, which was Earth Day, with Bill Nye, and we talked to Bill about advocacy and climate change. Then we talked to Josh Willis about melting ice sheets. And this week, we're going to talk to Hope Jaron, who studies the effect of climate change on plant life. Finally, we're going to wrap everything up next week talking to Ben Beard from the Centers for Disease Control on the effect of climate change on human beings, and in particular, vector-borne diseases. What an uplifting way to end. Vector-borne diseases just rolls off the tongue. (laughs) Yeah, it all gets better from here. But let me tell you about this week's guest. So you might have heard about Hope Jaron's book, Lab Girl. It's been hitting the presses. It's got really good reviews in the New York Times. And I have to say, when it was first pitched to me, I thought, huh, I've never heard of this person, but maybe it's okay. And I loved this book. It was like a guilty pleasure. She is so funny and witty and talks about all kinds of things that are you know, really interesting and relevant to anyone who's interested or has a life, (laughs) Uh, anything to do with science. But also she has these snippets of her work in terms of plant life, and they are digestible and profound and awesome. So I had a great time reading this book and looking forward to chatting with her. Hope was just named uh, to the time 100, 100 most influential people of of the last year. I'm really excited to take a look at Lab Girl in in more depth, because I've only heard great things, that it's an intensely personal tale that weaves science throughout. And, you know, I I had read some of her previous work, uh, and I didn't know it was Hope at the time, uh, talking about sexual harassment and science and the problems in the field and so forth. And she wrote really eloquently about that. Um, But she also 
hijacked a Twitter hashtag from I think it was Seventeen Magazine. So they had a Twitter hashtag that was Manicure Mondays. And she just tweeted out a picture of her, you know, dirty fingers holding a vial and wrote, you know, Manicure Mondays and how sometimes women like to get their hands dirty. And I thought it was hilarious and completely took off and hijacked that particular field. That's awesome. On a more serious note, she published something either this week or last week that I think it was in National Geographic that I found fascinating, where she talked about funding for science, but not funding for science in this way that like, oh, woe is me, if only we had more funding for science. She broke down the math of what it means to fund her lab and the people that work there and what that means for the students that work there. And what her success rate needs to be on grants in order for those people to work there. And it was shocking seeing numbers that we see bandied about like, oh, the NSF has a budget of $4 billion here in the U.S. How that breaks down to like $40,000 real quick on the other end of a grant. Uh, I thought it was a really fascinating read for anyone that really wants that insider's look of what it means to run a lab. Yeah, and from her book, it's clear that this is an important issue for her because her best friend is also a person that is a research scientist in her lab, someone that she met in grad school and has worked with her at every single time she's moved her lab, which has been at least three, if not four times across the country from you know California to Georgia to Baltimore and now in Hawaii. And you know she's taken taken this person who's an incredibly important part of her lab. She doesn't consider her lab complete without him with her every time. And she's had to make some of these moves at times because her funding situation in one place did not include funding for this integral part of her lab. Uh, it, it's a crazy situation. It's not one that offers a lot of solutions, but that's the kind of writing that I appreciate. It's frank. It's honest uh, without being preachy. Yeah, so that'll be our interview for today. But first, anything catch your eye this week? Yeah, there was actually an interesting survey that came out of Yale and Georgetown featuring the work of Dan Cahan, who is a scholar that studies climate change communication. Mm -hmm. So on the heels of our discussion with Bill Nye, I took a look at this, and he did a survey that really evaluated what does it take to actually change people's minds about climate, because so many different things are, are bandied about. And there were some interesting findings that go against what we sort of think. And one of them was that when people understand how big of a difference there is in terms of how many, what percentage of scientists believe in climate change, particularly human responsible climate change, that that can shift people's priorities around climate change into the voting booth. Which is not something I expected to hear because a lot of evidence before that hadn't led to that. Which led me into something interesting I saw on TV this week. So Jimmy Kimmel had a video segment on Tuesday night, I believe, where he was sick and tired of how certain Republican uh, leaders were talking about climate change. And so he had a video featuring a bunch of climate scientists telling his audience that they're not messing around with climate change. Like, this is for real what it is. And they said words that I should not repeat on this podcast. But basically, the end point was like, we spent our whole lives doing this. We're not messing around with you. This is legit what's going on, and we're concerned. And I love the timing of this, that that survey came out on Monday. And we have a comedian that essentially, probably by accident, I'm sure he didn't wasn't aware of the research study, used 
information from that research to inform a communication piece. But I'm stymied by the fact that some of our best climate communication is coming from comedians like Jimmy Kimmel and John Oliver. Yeah, no, it is. It does seem to be ridiculous. But, you know, I have no problem with making this episode explicit. Oh, basically, (laughs) all the scientists said, like, yeah, we're not fucking with you. Climate change is real. And they just constantly said it. And it was all these different scientists from, like, from chemists to... Uh, act, you know, climate scientists down the middle, all these, in, you know, uh, people that study different aspects of, of what we consider climate scientists and of all shapes and sizes, like, you know, a diverse population. It was great. It was great. I mean, like at the end of the day, like I think there's been an underreporting about how bit massive that 97% of scientists believing in climate change, human responsible climate change is 97 to 3 yeah, I mean, I don't know many psychological phenomenon that have that amount of agreement. <laughs> I don't know if gravity has that much agreement. I'm really poked at it. So, All right, well, let's take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with Hope Jaron. This episode is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible is a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 180,000 titles to choose from, on topics ranging from politics to science to classics. It lets you listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Audible is offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free 30-day trial. To get started, go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Maybe you're interested in some books by recent guests of the show, like Cy Montgomery's Soul of an Octopus, a surprising exploration into the wonder of consciousness, or the book we're talking about on the show you're listening to right now, Lab Girl by Hope Jarrett. Audible's got them both. And Audible also has the Great Listen Guarantee. If you decide you don't like the book you chose, no worries. You can exchange any book you aren't happy with for another title, anytime, no questions asked. So once again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Did you know you can refinance your student loans, save thousands, and make your new loan incredibly easy to manage? Our sponsor this week, Ernest, has created the most flexible refinancing experience to help financially responsible grads take control of their student loans at earnest.com. Their product helps clients save an average of almost $18,000, with variable rates starting as low as 2.13% APR. Ernest never charges any fees, so no fees for origination and no penalties for paying off your loan quickly or changing your terms down the line. They let you customize your payment to match your budget and timeline, and their simple dashboard makes it easy to manage your loan, even from your phone. Ernest can do this because they're a new kind of lender, one that looks at things traditional banks don't, like your savings habits and earnings potential, to give you the lowest possible rates. And even better, their expert in-house customer service team is available via phone, email, and chat for the life of your loan. It takes less than two minutes to find out how much you could save, and they even have a special offer for our listeners. Get a $150 bonus when you refinance through earnest.com slash inquiringminds. Don't get stuck paying more than you have to. Check out earnest.com slash inquiringminds and take two minutes to see your personalized rate estimate today. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Hope Jaron. Thank you. 
I am so excited to talk about you because I have to say that sometimes for my job, I have to read a lot of books and there come times when I'm a little bit tired and I think, well, if I make lunch, should I just watch an episode of House of Cards or read the book? And in your case, the answer was always read the book. It was way more interesting than anything else I could watch. It's a really fascinating read and I want to congratulate you on your ability to write, not only do amazing science, but amazing writing too. Well, thank you. It gives me really great joy to hear that from people. Uh, when you're writing a book, you know, there's an awful long period of time where you're sitting and writing and you think every sentence, you think about, you know, what might interest somebody and what might make them smile and, and what might spark their imagination. And you kind of form this image, this ghost image of a reader uh, and then once the book is published, you finally get to meet this person and he and she, they come to life and they walk up to you and, and talk to you. And it's, it's really been the greatest joy of, of having that happen and hearing that people found something good in it. You know, I have to say that when uh, Oliver Sacks died last summer, who, you know, I was lucky enough to call a friend, I was really sad because I thought that that kind of writing you know, would not be repeated for a long time. And I found a little bit of him in your writing. And it made me wonder whether you had ever met Oliver, uh, also because he's a great fan of ferns. And from your blog posts, at least, I see that maybe you are too. Is that something that ever happened? I'm sorry to disappoint you by saying no. And in fact, um, people have made the comparison and I actually had to go look up who these people are. Uh, I My world is pretty small. You know, I, you probably got that from the book. I spent a lot of time in uh, small rooms uh, counting things and, and outside looking at tiny little leaves and uh, I've had a lot of time to be in my own head and, and to talk to this ghost reader. <laughs> and now I'm a little bit coming out of my shell. And, and I do hear that sometimes, uh, comparisons to other authors. And it's opening up a world of stuff that I've got to go read, I think. <laughs> So very early on and throughout, you've, you've had a very successful career by any measure as a scientist. In fact, you, you were one of uh, only four researchers and the only woman to get two Young Earth Scientist Awards. Um, one of them I probably will totally mispronounce, the Masselwain Medal. Yeah. And the other, yeah, okay. And the Donath Award. So do you think that your ability or your desire to spend so much time alone with plants is instrumental in that kind of success? Or do you think that there's something else that you bring to the table? Um, I, it, it has baffled me, uh, you know, this business, what you get rewarded for and, and what gets um, ignored or, or doesn't get noticed and, and what gets celebrated. And uh, there's no rhyme or reason to it whatsoever. Um, I, I will say I'm grateful for the awards and recognition I've gotten, but I can say that they 
don't make any sense in terms of the pattern. You know, I could point to things that I love that nobody ever read. <laughs> and I could also um, really stand here and say that every day I spend in the lab is its own reward. And if the only reward for each day of my work is the permission to do another day of it, then that's the that that's that's the prize. That's what I've always wanted. And and I've <laughs> and that's that's what is precious to me. Um, and I think it has to be that way. I think that you have to learn to reward yourself to stay in this business because it, it is such an awful lot of work and sacrifice and, and the, uh, the external rewards, the grants and publications and accolades, they may not come and, and they don't always go to the right people for the right reason. But um, the rewards that really matter are ones you can give yourself. So let's talk a little bit about your work. What is geobiology? Right. So I like to use the word geobiology, uh, not because it's a very common word, but because it's a word that breaks down into exactly what you'd think it is. So it's geo, which is earth, and bio, which is life. And I'm interested in how those two things come together. So you smush it together as one word, geobiology. Uh, I'm interested in how the parts of the planet that aren't alive, rocks and rivers and rain and clouds, how those turn into the bio, the parts of the world that are alive, leaves and moss and, and the things that eat those things. And so the process of one becoming the other, both today and how that's happened for millions of years, that that's what I'm really interested in studying. And since April 22nd here at Inquiring Minds, we've been focusing four episodes a month on climate change. So I wanted to actually talk a little bit about some of your work on the Eocene. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that particular time period correctly, um, which has as you as you say on your website, been characterized as a period of uniquely warm polar environments. So in some ways, it might be where our climate is going, where our Earth is going. So what can we learn from studying this period? And in particular, what did you learn from looking at the plants that might have lived at that time? Right. So the really interesting thing about the Eocene is that there were forests far above the Arctic Circle. If you travel above the Arctic Circle today, you know, you might see some moss or, or a little bit of lichens growing on the ground, but you won't see anything that grows higher than about to your knees. And you certainly won't see these massive forests that used to exist. I mean, we've excavated individual trees that are more than three meters in diameter, thick, productive forests with understory. And um, there were all kinds of interesting animals that also lived in these forests. Now, it was warmer in the Eocene. We're fairly, we're fairly sure of that. About 45 million years ago um, is when I'm talking. And uh, there was must have been rain, you know, not completely frozen all year in order for the plants to have their roots in the ground. But the thing that we really find intriguing is that one thing hasn't changed. And that's that it was pitch black dark for three months out of the year up there. And also continuously light for three months out of the year. And you can try that with your house plants, you know, put them in a pitch dark room for three solid months, they'll die. Right. So, so for us, it's like, 
you know, it's it's akin to, in some ways, the finding a fossil human that could breathe underwater. You know, we don't have plants that can grow in the dark today, or the plants that we have today don't use that particular capability right now. And so that's why we're interested, because, um, you know, that warm world represents a whole opening of a new door into wildly different possibilities of, of how life configures itself on the planet. So what do we know? And and how do you study this? I mean, because obviously, these trees don't exist anymore. So how how do you go about your daily work of, of figuring out the answer to that question? Right. So it's basic detective work. It's like going to any place where something happened, and it's over. And what do you have left? You have the clues that you have left. Um, what we have is the tissue of these plants. So one of the really outstanding things about this site is that the trees are mummified. And that means that the tissues are preserved intact. It's wood. It would actually burn in a campfire if, if you tried to burn it. Um, it's not like the wood that you find in the petrified forest in Arizona where you might have gone before, where the wood has been slowly replaced by minerals and turned into rock. This is actual wood. We have the tissues of these guys. So then the the challenge is to say, well, what can we tell from the tissues themselves? That's where it becomes important to think about, well, these tissues were made of the bare bones of the planet. So there was water that was combined with carbon from the atmosphere that was glued together using energy from the sun. And uh, we use chemical techniques. We use techniques associated with the isotope chemistry of the atoms that are still part of these tissues to try to tease out some information about, well, how often did rain fall? And, and when during the year did it fall? And, and what exactly were the temperatures? And, and sort of how does the different climate parameters that were in play make possible this life in the darkness? right? We'd like to know what levels the atmosphere, the light, the temperature, the water supply, what levels those were at that were also sufficient to facilitate this really odd configuration of plant growth. So are we at a point where you can actually, in your mind's eye, imagine what the world would have been like 45 million years ago when this climate was so different? Yeah. I mean, we have reconstructed the leaf litter, you know, every part of the forest, right? We know what the soils looked like. We know what the dead leaves in heaps at the forest floor looked like. Uh, we know we have good projections on how many trees there were and how densely they grew and what the understory was like and what the canopy was shaped as. And, and my colleagues that study vertebrate organisms know uh, what kind of mammals were running around um, in the darkness for part of the year. <laughs> and uh, we have a good vision of what the world used to be like, uh, which is really neat thing to do when you're up there juxtaposing that image against the fact that you're near the North Pole and there's not a soul in sight for thousands of miles and there's not a green thing in sight for hundreds of miles. And, and there's the big old slab of ice, <laughs> you know, to the, to the one side of the site. Um, it's really a wonderful 
exercise for anybody who likes to stretch their imagination until it hurts. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of amazing to think that you can get all of that information from what essentially are soil samples is, is how I imagine the kind of like, you know, if I, if I see in my mind's eye what you look like out on the tundra or even further up uh, north, I mean, you're really just taking soil samples. And then from those, you are looking at the, the chemical constituents and recreating this amazing story of what the world would have looked like. Yeah, it's a little like a crime scene in that almost anything you come upon could have information in it. Um, you know, uh, the fossils themselves. And I have to stress that, you know, it's not just our team that does that, but it's in collaboration with a lot of researchers. Um, my colleagues at University of Colorado have been uh, key at University of Pennsylvania um, there's certainly a large number of Canadian researchers, University of Saskatchewan and many other places that have done lots of work, the Canadian Geological Survey, for example, um, documenting these fossils, measuring them, mapping, you know, where they are and how they change through the different layers of the rock. And our piece has been a small part of that to actually take the tissues themselves and analyze them for their chemistry for the biological chemistry of what's left in the fossil tissues. So in your book, you describe your upbringing in Minnesota and how you used to enjoy going to the lab with your dad and playing with the instruments there. So tell us a little bit about those early experiences and how they shaped your desire to become a scientist. Well, my very earliest memories are being in the lab. And I never... I never thought about that until people asked me why, you know, how did I go into being a lab scientist or something like that? And it was a hard question to answer because I, I always knew that was what I would do. I, you know, my very earliest memories are being in the lab, what it looked like, what it smelled like, um, the hard surfaces of the countertops, uh, the way the glass shone and the, the way, you know, the electric wiring smelled when it was warm and uh, all that kind of business. My father was a community college teacher in a rural area in Minnesota. It was the only uh, higher education <laughs> institution in the county. And he taught uh, all the sciences. He taught there for 42 years. Uh, and he taught physics was his real love. And he liked earth science. And he had a laboratory. And that's where he went, you know, um, after dinner and before bedtime. Somebody in my family was always working. And we went with him, my brothers and I, and we helped. We took out the equipment and we fixed it and we... Um, maintained it and got it ready for tomorrow's exercise. And my father is an amazingly patient, uh, wonderful, wonderful teacher. And he just loved being there and he loved having us there and we could do anything we wanted. Um, he'd let us play with the stuff. And, and so I learned how to do all those, um, all those demonstrations with, you know, measuring you know, the effect of gravity on a rolling ball and, and the angle of a pendulum as it swings in proportion to the force applied and all this kind of business. Um, 
I knew that from, you know, being tiny. And I always felt like that was familiar and home and it's just where we went. And I thought, well, when I grow up, you know, I'm going to have my lab and we're going to do these experiments. And, and I just thought that when you grew up, that was what you did. <laughs> and that has been so incredibly useful because no matter how often it was, you know, then during my education that I was the only girl in the room or the only girl in the lab, or if I wasn't um, catching on as fast as other people in the classroom or whatever, there was never ever any question in my mind that I didn't belong there, that I, the lab wasn't the place where I was supposed to be. And that stayed with me very strongly um, from, from those very, very early days. You've talked a little bit, not so much in your book, but in other New York Times opinion pieces and so forth about some of the trials and tribulations facing female scientists. And I have to really commend you for coming out and talking about some of these issues that are often difficult, especially if you are in a position in which, you know, your job might be affected and so forth. And some of the advice you give is just to really be honest. And and yet we are getting... Uh, and you and you talk about this in one of your um, New York Times pieces to a point where we're now understanding that that the uh, that sexual harassment is a really big problem, especially in field work. And um, you know, on the show, we've had a number of female scientists, but not so, not as many who have spent a lot of their time in the field as you have. Um, so I wondered if we could just touch on that a little bit and get your take on uh, what the situation is like now. Is it getting better? And what can women do who are interested, like you were, in looking at scientific domains that involve a lot of field work uh, to ensure that they don't get jaded if they have these negative experiences? I think that there are important questions that are worth asking about the conditions under which women labor. And when I do science, I do it because I love it. And the rewards that I get from it are for me. And I'm hopefully useful to an institution at the same time that I do it. But at the end of the day, I am still laboring for compensation. And the conditions of labor are part of the great tradition of questioning what it means to labor with dignity and humanity uh, in this country. Um, what I'm trying to say is that all the, all the problems that come from the basic power imbalance between men and women, which is a learned cultural norm within our society, all the problems associated with that power imbalance do not stop at the door when we enter the laboratory or when we go into the field or when we labor in the name of science, that the harm that comes as an expression of that power imbalance, everything from harassment to assault, follows us into these scientific spaces. And so I've opened my mouth and questioned whether women are as safe as they should be while they're laboring in the name of science and taken a very hard stance in terms of if we want to encourage women 
to labor in science. Part and parcel of that is creating an environment where they can do that without harm. I'm very wary of answers for that that are heavily dependent on women changing their behavior. There are certainly certain things a person can do, you know, to be more safe or, or to, you know, make oneself a harder target, shall we say. But I'm very interested in interrogating the basis of, again, the conditions of our labor. You know, how do our institutions, how are they obligated to provide a safe place for this labor to occur? And coming around to asking our universities and our research institutes that, I think that's absolutely valid, um, especially since we're laboring so very hard and for relatively little in a lot of these contexts. And, you know, in some ways you are uniquely positioned to talk about this because you chose a field that is particularly male dominated and also involves a lot of field work. So I want to get back to talking about your work and what drew you to geobiology to begin with and you know, how it is that you've sort of maintained your love of plants without in a lot of ways anthropomorphizing them. One of the things I liked about your book is where you talk about, you know, what's the difference between a plant and a human a lot, <laughs> that they sh- we shouldn't just see them as kind of mirrors into ourselves, which a lot of people who write about uh, different scientific topics tend towards anthropomorphizing what it is they're, that they're talking about. Yeah, I I think that reflects my experience. I spent an awful lot of time with plants, and I've run up against the fact that they're so different than we are in some very real ways, (laughs) some very life-changing ways. Um, I've also run up against the idea that I can't control them, and I can't even always understand why they're not doing what I expect them to do. I think that's something that I run into in my work in very real ways, you know, on a regular basis. And and some of that has given me maybe a special window into just how much of an other they are. Um, I remember early in my career, I was trying to understand the relationship between the chemistry of the water that goes into the roots of a tree and the chemistry of the fruit that it produces. So I set up these experiments. I I had these trees that I was monitoring and I was collecting the rainfall and I was visiting them and they were located in Colorado and South Dakota. And then at the end of the season, um, none of those trees flowered or bore fruit. They just didn't. And that was a problem because (laughs) that was the point of the experiment. And there wasn't any obvious reason why they didn't. Um, The local landowners, of course, told me, yeah, you know, they they don't every year. And plants don't. Um, There's no advantage in providing that resource too regularly to the herbivores. You don't want the herbivores to count on exactly when you're going to come up with that resource because they'll they'll get dependent on you, they'll specialize in you and they'll eat you to death, right? <laughs> so <laughs> so what I came to as a result of that was that you know those plants were not producing fruit in order to educate 
future geobiologists, right? <laughs> they were producing fruit in order to solve a variety of problems that they were preoccupied with, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it all, you know, read, reading some of your work makes me wonder about the kind of, you know, volition of a plant and, you know, what its kind of desire, what, what is its, if it had a brain, what, what would it be thinking about? Right. So that's where our words really fail us. And I have a lot of ideas about how language isn't up to the task of really capturing this. You know, so you can say, why does the plant want to flower this year and not want to flower next year? And want isn't really the right word for that, because I don't mean want the same way you and I want a burrito for dinner right? It's not the same process. Although um, you deciding that you want a burrito for dinner actually breaks down into little more than a lot of different biochemical reactions resulting in signals that go from your <laughs> eyes to your brain to your hands, etc. So in, in some ways, it, it's not as big of a stretch. So can I say that a plant wants to flower when its biochemical processes make it happen according to a variety of critical inputs that I don't evaluate the same way it does? You know, where is the word that I can use if it's not want? Okay, it's not want. That's a bad word. It's anthropomorphizing. Give me the one I can use. <laughs> give, me, give me a word that, that works and that you'll understand. You know, don't give me jargon. Uh, where is that place that I can talk about this so that I can talk to a new group of people and have them understand me and and have them relate to it and also appreciate the otherness, the deep difference? That was the main challenge of the book. And so, I, I mean... I really liked how you would have a vignette about what's happening in a plant. Uh, so, for example, there might be a plant that wants to reproduce. Uh, and then you would talk about when you had a baby. <laughs> and there's, you know, there are a lot of parallels of things that we can learn from sort of the life cycle of the plant that have a real profound insight into, you know, what it means to be human, which is which is what I loved. But I also want to turn back a little bit to the bigger picture of climate change and ask you about your feelings of or, and your observations uh, from what how the plants have adapted in the past to changes in climate, what we can expect that they can do in the future, and whether they represent our saving grace, as some people have suggested, you know, plant more trees and we will stay, stave off global warming. Yeah, that's a difficult question. I think, you know, regardless of what humans do to the climate, there will still be a rock orbiting the sun, right? So <laughs> that's kind of the extreme scenario. Um, but, you know, short of that, we are already seeing extinctions. We're already seeing the balance of who can thrive and who can't thrive in terms of the plant world uh, all radically shifted. I mean, in a lot of ways, I think that train has passed is sort of the sad news. Um, I think, I think my job is to leave some evidence for future generations that there was somebody who cared while we were destroying everything. 
Wow, uh, that's a that's a stark view. It is. I don't know that I can give you the constructive answer that I suspect you want. Yeah, that I think that you know any of us would want. I think that this is something that you know we've we've been struggling with in all of our discussions on climate change is that you know the truth is is that the answers aren't there and certainly not the ones that we want to hear. Right. And I've never been able to come up with a solution that doesn't go back to the very simple that your life matters and this month matters and go outside and notice the green things and decide for yourself how much you value them. Um, decide for yourself what your values tell you about forests versus cropland to feed people. What do your values tell you about forests versus cropland to grow crops and then ferment them into fuel? I mean, that's one very interesting thing that's happening is that we're deforesting the globe rapidly. A lot of the deforestation that's happened in the past has been to expand farmland because population has been growing and the amount of food that we need to produce in order to feed the global population has increased by a lot. But one thing that's happening now, just after the year 2000, this century, is that we're now deforesting in order to grow crops. And then we're taking that food and we're fermenting it back into fuel and burning it in our gas tanks. So we're now doing this thing where we take combustion engines and we power machines to chop down trees and we power machines to plant crops and power machines to harvest crops. And then we take those crops, ferment them back into fuel, put them in more combustion engines. And it's this weird environmental Mobius strip. And so I like to point out, you know, all industrial activity is not for the same purpose. It doesn't all all deforestation is not towards the same purpose. Um, so I like to educate people about, you know, what's happening? What are the real numbers here? You know, how many trees are we losing? And how much food are we growing? And who's getting the food and, and things like that? I, I, I'm a big believer in showing students and readers the numbers and then asking them, what, what do your values tell you about whether this is legitimate, unfortunate, but necessary, or absurd. And I, I have a great deal of respect for my readers. I mean, I think that's part of the reason the book works is that it, it talks to you like a peer, like an equal. And I have a great respect that people will evaluate our environmental condition according to the information they're given, if that information is given with accuracy and integrity and in a form that is just for them. That's what I see as my role. So one of the things that I love to do in the Bay Area is go to Muir Woods, where there are these hundred year old ancient redwood trees. And there's just something amazing about, you know, we don't have a lot of architectural history in the US, but to walk through a forest that has, you know, has has been there since before the First World War feels kind of amazing. And in your book, you talk about the fact that trees remember their childhood. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? And how do we know that? 
Right. So trees have a life. And I remember the moment I realized that I was looking at a graph and it had the amount of mass associated with each part of the tree. It was like the ratio of mass in the branches versus the trunk versus the roots. And there were these lines in that it changed, you know, over time. The first 10 years, there's all this growth and all this biomass in the trunk. And then in the next 10 years, there's all this stuff going on in the leaves. The plant becomes very lush in leaves. And then things kind of even out and the plant goes into this long middle age. These are trees where nothing really changes. And then, you know, old age occurs and, and there's death and the branches start to fall away, etc. And so I remember looking at that graph and thinking, oh, my God, you know, this represents the childhood and the teenagerhood of the tree. And then there's this young adult period where there's very frequent reproduction, etc. And then there's kind of a middle age where not a lot changes. And then there's a slow process of decay. And although on some level, I knew those things, I remember it striking me very vividly as, you know, this thing has a life. And now what we're learning with respect to it's called epigenetics. It's genetics, but the epa is a little signifier that means that this is something special, something a little outside of traditional genetics. But what we're learning is that processes, you know, freezing or warming or, or, or different events that happen during the childhood of these trees make a difference in terms of how the tree will act later on, when it will produce leaves and, and things like that. And, and we've done this with experiments where we've subjected embryos of twin trees, same genes, to different conditions and then watched how they grow up. And so we're, we're looking into um, how trees remember their childhood. Now, they don't remember it the same way we remember ours, but they store that information, and then it comes into play later. And maybe, again, it's not a perfect word, but maybe storing information and bringing it out later, maybe that's what memory really is. So maybe it fits. So, and it kind of gives me a little bit of hope that even when we think about these very old trees, we think, I think about them as being in some ways the most vulnerable to changes in climate since, you know, it takes them so long uh, to develop and, and grow and so forth. Uh, but maybe there is something that is happening in the trees that are being born today that is going to make them more adaptable as the climate changes. Or is that just wishful thinking? Or less. <laughs> or less. Uh, we're still studying that. Um, all change is not for the best. You know, that's a different sort of thing. Um, but what I think is interesting about what you said is the amount of joy that you get out of it, the amount of joy that you get from being in near those trees. And I, I hear that a lot. And it's a really wonderful thing. I think people will always be drawn to trees. They're, they're big, you know, they're so much bigger than we are. And a lot of them, the, those trees that you like to visit, they were they were around when you were born and hopefully they'll still be there when you're dead. And you walk away at the end of the day and go inside if it rains and, and go somewhere safe when it's dark and they stay, they stay and endure the world. And there's something about that that makes you feel 
uh, I don't, I mean, you'd have to say what you think, but it, it seems to comfort you that there's something about something that's so different than you are that is so stable a part of the world that you can kind of turn to. Um, what's interesting thing about that is that that tree does not care about you. Like as long as you're not blocking its light or cutting it down or, I mean, you, you walking around underneath it is absolutely not, it's worried about getting light, getting water and getting carbon dioxide and the nutrients that come in with water and you being there or not being there or whatever, until you start to modify any of those things, it absolutely doesn't care. It has no response. And, and that's what I mean by the otherness, um, that that deep otherness does nothing to diminish the fact that you get something out of it, but that's about your need to experience meaning, to, to transcend yourself, to, to feel the stability of another different way of enduring the world. And I think that joy and that um, sustenance is there for the taking. You know, all you really need to do is plant a tree in your yard or befriend the tree on your boulevard or just look at it as you walk by every single day. That's a gift you can give yourself. And so I often say that, you know, we don't need we don't need to plant trees to save the trees. <laughs> we need to not overlook their capacity to save us because I, I meet so many people that are hungry for meaning and for an association with something bigger than themselves. And I believe that while well, studying trees has given me that. And so I can, um, with a clean conscience, recommend it <laughs> to other people. Yeah. And I, I mean, there's something really kind of different about thinking about, yes, the rock next to the tree might also have been there for hundreds and millions of years even. Um, but the fact that the tree is alive and it has seen so much change in the last century uh, and it's still alive, there's something comforting about that, even if it ends up being a false comfort and, you know, the, the plant life outlives the human life uh, as our climate changes. And I think once, once you appreciate that, you get a different view of cutting down a tree. You know, the world breaks a little bit every time we cut down a tree. It's, it's so much easier to cut one down than, than to grow one, you know? And so it's worth, it's worth interrogating every time we do it. And not because they're like us, but because they're so very different. And the more you appreciate that, uh, the stronger your views and values and opinions will be about exactly how many trees we cut down. <laughs> I see that. I, I believe that. And on that note, I want to remind our listeners that Hope's book, Lab Girl, is now available at booksellers everywhere. Hope, Darren, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. You're welcome. My pleasure. So what stuck out to me was this idea of using values around forests, like thinking about things not necessarily scientifically or quantitatively, but from a human value standpoint, because I do have a value 
on Forrest. Yeah. So this is what's really interesting to me about Hope's work, or at least how she writes about it in Lab Girl. You know, she's clearly your stereotypical scientist because she spends so much time with tools. You know, she talks about how when she was building her first lab in Georgia, you know, to in order to de-stress, she would like go online and order equipment and then it would come in boxes and she felt like it was she was a bride and this was her wedding registry. Like, you know, that's that's dedication to building a lab. You know, I don't know that everybody would necessarily feel that way. Or if you do feel that way, you should find a place in science because it's for you. And yet she talks about her subject matter in this very kind of human almost humanities poetic way. And that's why I said she reminded me of Oliver Sacks is because, you know, he took this approach to science, but put a very human lens on the way in which she described it. Without necessarily, you know, anthropomorphizing it, like you mentioned, or singing too much praise on it, like heaping too much value on it. I I really uh, gravitate towards that idea of where do you put your own value on the forest? Because like in that context... Oh, I definitely want to preserve forests, like without the all of the other context about it, because as I walk through different forests, like Muir Woods, like you mentioned, I have a really different, you know, emotional experience yeah, than I and, do in other areas. You know, I think one of, you know, by, with her fascination with plants and spending so much time of it, she does say again and again that she doesn't really spend a lot of time with people. She spends a lot of time with plants and in the lab and so forth. You know, but that allows her to say things like, you know, every chapter starts out with a really interesting metaphor. You know, the life of a deciduous tree is ruled by its annual budget. <laughs> You know, and so and and sure enough, she's going to talk about, you know, scientific concept and describe how it is in the tree. And yet we can all relate to that. You know, up until then, it was hard for me to understand sort of, you know, but you you put it into the framework of a budget and all of a sudden I get it. So do you think soil has a soul after all of this? <laughs> um, I don't. I mean, I don't even think you or I have souls. So <laughs> that's I'm debatable. The wrong person to ask. It's debatable because we have no definition for soul. In right. case our listeners get mad. But I think it's interesting. I I think her work really does make me, uh, it does impress me scientifically as well. Because the idea, we talk about our DNA being, you know, records of our, of human history in a lot of ways. Well, we can really think about the soil in that way too. And I think that's a fascinating legacy. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, Herring Chang, Nick Cadillac, Sean Johnson, Brendan Ryan, and our anonymous friends. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by our very own soul man, Adam Isaac, in cooperation with the Climate Desk. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer, Rian Chian. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari, at Science Quiche. See you next week. And once again, this episode is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 180,000 titles to choose from. And they're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free 30-day trial. To get started, go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. That's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. 
Our sponsor, Ernest, offers the most flexible student loan refinancing available, saving clients almost $18,000 on average. Ernest looks at things traditional banks don't, like your savings habits and earnings potential, to give you the lowest possible rate. They never charge fees and let you totally customize your term and payment amount to match your budget and timeline. On top of saving an average of around $18,000, our podcast listeners can get a $150 bonus when they refinance. Check out earnest.com slash inquiringminds to get your personalized rate estimate in just two minutes. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. <laughs> 